Hi, my name is Sarah. The Old Testament reading this morning is found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that it may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on the earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Evan. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians 3, verses 8 through 11. But now set aside these things, such as anger, rage, malice, slander, and obscene language. Don't lie to each other. Take off the old human nature with its practices and put on the new nature, which is renewed in knowledge by conforming to the image of the one who created it. In this image, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all things and in all people. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Amy. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 16, 21 through 24. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and legal experts, and that he had to be killed and raised on the third day. Then Peter took hold of Jesus and, scolding him, began to correct him. God forbid, Lord, this won't happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stone that could make me stumble, for you are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. Then Jesus said to his disciples, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me for a moment while we pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you made us in your image. In the image of God, you created us. So we pray as your image bearers, those that you created and called and commissioned to make you known to the world, that you would continue your great work in us and shaping us and transforming us into who you called and created us to be, that we might put you on display for everyone to see and to behold you are a good, good father. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, it's good to see you this morning. You may be seated. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is preaching up at New Life North today, which I affectionately call Yankee Stadium, uh, way up over there. Uh, he's there this morning. Our lead worship pastor, uh, Brian Bettis, and his wife, Amy, are ministering at a church in California. So we had Danny and Donica and the team leading us today in worship. Thank you all so much for uh, hopping in and helping us out this morning. We, uh, I don't know about you, but I have a very functional relationship with clothing. I simply wear what seems to be most suitable for the task. When I'm thinking about, oh, it's time to get ready to go to work, jeans, slacks, collared shirt, good. Not thinking much more about it than that. If it's time to go to sleep, sweatpants, t-shirt, 
go to sleep. If it's time to work in the lawn, like ratty jeans or shorts, a ratty t-shirt, get out, get in the dirt, work. It's purely like what clothing makes the most sense for what I need to do. Well, I've discovered though that my three daughters have a very different relationship with clothing. Very different than I do. See, for them, when they like put on a tutu, it's not they're putting on a tutu in order to go to dance. When they put on a tutu, they become a ballerina. Like something happens in them as they change their clothes. Or as they put on their Elsa or Belle nightgowns, they don't just put on their nightgowns to go to sleep. When they put on these nightgowns, they become princesses. See, I have this very functional relationship with clothing, but theirs is more transformational. It's something that happens when they change clothes. They're more like superheroes that way. Right? Superheroes, like when they take off one set of clothing and put on a different set of clothing, something happens. And really with superheroes, what happens is when they change clothes, their true identity is revealed, right? I am not actually Clark Kent. I am Superman. I am not actually, is it Mrs. Parr? Is that the Incredibles? But I am Elastigirl. Like there's something that reveals identity through clothing. And I think that idea is actually close to what we find in today's passage. We are in our sixth week through a series called Jesus Holds It All. Kind of was echoed in that very first song we sang today. It's a look through the letter that Paul and Timothy wrote to this young church in, a, in the has-been town of Colossae. It's a letter to Colossians. We've been walking through this. And today, we are moving into chapter 3, where we see in the first couple of chapters, Paul talks a lot about the supremacy of Jesus and the goodness and the beauty of the gospel. And then in chapter 3, he begins to make this shift of talking about uh, ethics, how we live in light of what is true about God and what is true about us. And so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. You can follow along on your smartphone or in a Bible, or we'll have all the verses on the screen as we walk through as well. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. It says, Therefore, if you were raised with Christ, or other translations will say, since you were raised with Christ, Look for the things that are above, where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. Think about the things above, not things on earth. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So when Paul starts talking to the Colossians and making this transition from talking about what's true to talking about how we live in light of what's true, he goes back and he reiterates to the Colossians, says Christ has died, Christ has been raised from the dead, and Christ will return in glory. That Christ will return. And then he goes and he makes this other move. And he says, you died you were raised from the dead, and you will be revealed in glory. And there's a part of it when we think about this, that Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and Jesus will return and be revealed in glory. And we think about that as it relates to our lives. We think about it primarily in terms of our future hope. That we think about, yes, we are going to die. And some of us have been faced with that in the most painful ways recently. 
either people that we know and love, kids, spouses, parents, loved ones who've died, or those who are close to us who've experienced that, and we know the pain and the trauma and the terror of death. And in those moments, we clutch on to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, and therefore death does not have the final say, but we too someday will be raised with Jesus when Jesus comes again and wipes away every tear and makes everything right again. So we clutch on to that as the anchor of our hope, the aspect of this that we know will someday be true. But what's interesting in this passage is that Paul, he's nodding to the things that will be true, but he's taking this and saying, no, but this isn't something that's not only going to be true, it's something that actually already is true. This isn't just something that will happen, but something that has happened and something that is happening. That he says what has happened to Jesus has actually happened to us and is happening to us right now. What has happened to Jesus has happened to us. Now, sometimes when we think about this kind of language, the first thing that I think of is the way that I talk about my favorite sports team, which is using a lot of we language, and I really don't have any involvement in it at all, right? Sarah's like, oh, how are things going with your, I'm a Minnesota Twins fan, a huge baseball fan. I grew up in Northern Iowa, so really close to Minneapolis. And so when I talk about the Twins, I always speak in the we, all right? We lost today, we, we you know, lost again today, and this year we lost again uh, the next, it's been a lot of loss all year long. This, uh, this person's hurt for us, and we need to do this in the off season, and we need, and it drives my wife a little batty, just to be honest. She's like, we? Like, they're in Minnesota playing on a field. You're on your couch watching on your iPad. Like, there's no we involved in this. That my union with the Minnesota Twins is a fictitious union. (laughs) Right? But that's not the way Paul uses this. So when Paul's talking, he's not talking about something that happened to us vicariously. He's not talking about something that's imaginative or something that's fictitious. But when Paul uses this language, he speaks about it as something that has actually happened. This isn't imaginary sort of participation in the life of Jesus, but actual participation in him. Something that's symbolized in baptism as we come forward and we go under the water and we realize that we have died to something and then we're brought back up out of the water and realize that we've been raised to a new life in something. But like all symbols, it points beyond itself to something that is profoundly true. That we have actually died and we have actually been raised again and we are dying to something and we are being raised again and someday those things will happen in the future. But it's something true about now and something that's realized over time. And this deeper reality is what's the foundation for, all, for every time Paul talks about ethics. Whenever Paul talks about how we live, it's always grounded in what God has done and what has happened to us because of that and who we now are. So he puts it in ways like this. As we go through the letter, we see he says, Jesus died and we died with him 
So therefore, we can take off what kills. And we can take off what has already been killed in our lives, what we've already died to, the things that kill us and destroy us and the people that we love, that those things have been taken off of us, that we can take them off and leave them aside. And he says it this way, beginning in verse five. He says, so put to death the parts of your life that belong to the earth, such as sexual immorality, moral corruption, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. The wrath of God is coming upon disobedient people because of these things. But now, uh, you used to live this way when, when you were alive to these things, but now set aside these things. Then he gives us the second list, such as anger, rage, malice, slander, and obscene language. Don't lie to each other, but take off the old human nature with its practices. Three times, he says, put to death, set aside, take off. Put to death, set aside, take off. Take off what kills. And he gives us really two lists here. Two lists of things that he tells us to take off. The first are things that we could say are sins born out of desires, Sins of desire. And the second are sins that create discord. So in this first list of sins of desire, he focuses primarily on the sins that are birthed out of lust, out of sexual desire that has been misdirected or misplaced. And he uses a several words here to sort of describe what's happening. And the words that he uses are the most inclusive list that we can possibly think of that he's using sort of a shorthand way of saying that everything that God asked the Israelites in the Old Testament to not practice in terms of sexuality, he takes those things and says that's also true for the church, that those things are true for the people of God here and now, that there's a taking off of a kind of sexual ethic. And he's particularly here talking to Gentiles. And in the Gentile world at that time, a lot of folks would have sort of a a procreational sexual relationship with their spouse. But then they would have recreational sexual relationships with whoever they wanted. And what he's saying is, no, that's not the way it goes for the people of God. That those things get taken off and a new sexual ethic forms the people of God. That our sexual ethic and expression and identity are not going to be things that are about our soul and are solely our enjoyment and our fulfillment, but they're being transformed in some way. And then he moves on from talking about this idea of things that come out of sexual desire and talks about things that are born not out of lust, but out of greed. And he places them in the same list. Things that we might want to give hierarchy to and say, oh, this is more severe than this, places them together things that are born out of sort of an obsessive material desire to say, really what I want is more and more and more and more. And I want to acquire, acquire, acquire. And I want to keep and I want to store. And it's about me and my financial package and my future and my economics and my, my, mine. He says, no, this is not the way it goes for the people of God. That for the people of God, that our material, our relationship with the material is transformed by our relationship to God and one another. We have to take off that old practice of greed and put on a new practice of simplicity and generosity. 
And then he goes into the second list and begins to talk about sins that are born out of anger, things that lead to relational discord. And anger is one of those things that's kind of strange to find in the list because you're like, but anger's an emotion. <laughs> like, what do I do with that? It's an emotion that we all feel, that we all experience in some way, that we all deal with. And he's saying we have to take this off. And I think what he's saying is what we know to be true about anger is that anger is an emotion that we feel, but what we do with it really matters. Emotion is something we need to name and be able to deal with in a way that is therefore the not destructive. Uh, this is something that for me resonates really well at home. For those of you who are familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram one, which means nature, uh, anger is my primary emotion. Something happens and that's sort of like my go-to. How are you feeling? I'm mad, I'm angry. It's just sort of like, well, is there anything else happening? <laughs> And really, uh, a lot of like therapists and counselors help us to realize anger is oftentimes a masking emotion. There's something else going on under the surface. But for me, anger is there. But for a long time, I wasn't even able to name that. You've heard me tell this story before of my wife and I doing premarital counseling. And we'd go in and we'd have this whole session. And the counselor would say, okay, Jason, how do you feel? And I had only two vocabulary words, fine and frustrated. I didn't know how to express any other emotion other than that. It was just it. And I, I couldn't say angry because it just seemed wrong. But I could say frustrated. It's like, you know, there's like Christian cuss words. It was like the Christian emotion word that I would use. I'm frustrated. I'm not, I'm not angry. I've got to stay away from that. But I had to realize I have to identify that I feel angry so that I can deal with it the right way. So unfortunately, oftentimes what happens is we think, oh, I name my emotion and then I can express it however I want. But this is how I'm feeling, so therefore I'm justified just to let it go. And that's not what Paul is saying. But Paul actually says, no, we need to name these things so that we can deal with them in a creative and healthy manner. See, unfortunately, what happens for many of us is that we feel angry and the most common thing that we do with the anger is that we let it out in our speech and our words become destructive. So he's talking about rage and malice and slander and obscene talk. We yell and we cuss and we accuse and we blame and we demean. And what happens is, is that the emotion now sort of explodes out of us in a way that kills and destroys our relationships. The other thing he talks about in sins of discord is lying, putting out falsehood. We recognize there's something about truth-telling that brings us together and unites us and helps us to be in relationship with one another, but falsehood, lying, actually destroys and deteriorates our relationships. And so what he's saying is, is these sins that are born out of desire and sins that create discord actually kill us and our communities. And so he says, put them to death. Take these things off. Take off what kills. Why? Because Jesus has died and we have died with him to those things. The things that kill us have actually been killed so we can take them off. It no longer is who we are. 
something is profoundly different about us because of what's happened to Jesus. So he says, cut off all the supply lines, starve those things out, resist temptation early and often because the Holy Spirit is at work in us, redeeming us and enabling us to actually take those things off and to set them aside. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, not only do we take those things off, but he encourages us to redirect our desires. Not just to stop certain practices, but to start other ones. Not just to take something off, but to actually put something on. And I think oftentimes we get stuck in the church over here of just all the things that we know we're supposed to take off. And where I see this happen oftentimes is in accountability groups. I think accountability groups are great. There's a lot of value in being able to gather together with a group of people who are walking through something together to encourage one another, to help one another, to check in with one another, to pray for one another, to encourage each other not to do things, to be able to kind of walk through that, whether it's a, a men's group talking about people moving away from pornography or it's a women's group talking about moving away from whatever it happens to be that they're talking about. That's important. But sometimes what happens in that group is that, that that's all we talk about. We get focused in on that one thing and just talk about we need to stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. And that's yes, that has to be part of the conversation. Confession is good. But there's another step that says, yes, put on something else though. Put on something else and let's turn our attention from the things that kill to the things that give life. And not just to the things that give life, but to the one who gives life, the one who can set us free. And he goes on and he talks about it that this way in this letter. He says, not only Jesus died, but Jesus was raised and we were raised with him so we can put on what lives and what gives life. And we were raised with him so we can put on what lives and we can put on what gives life others. He puts it this way, beginning in verse 10. He says, and put on the new nature, which is renewed in knowledge by conforming to the image of the one who created it, the image of God. In this image, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all things and in all people. Therefore, as God's choice, holy, and loved people, and this is already who we are, chosen, holy, loved. So he says we already are. He says, therefore, then put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Be tolerant with each other. And if someone has a complaint against anyone, forgive each other as the Lord forgave you. So also forgive one another. And over all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. See, he tells us not only to take something off, but to put on something new. And it really tells us to put on our new image, to put on our new image that we have because of the work of Christ been renewed in the image of Christ and encourages us to put that on, that this is who we are. We are now people who have been conformed to the image 
of Jesus. Oftentimes at New Life Downtown, we talk about the idea that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And that Jesus himself is the fullest revelation of who God is. So if we're struggling to know like who God is and what God is like, we should behold Jesus. The same is also true for people. That if we want to know what humanity was intended to look like, but what God's dream and God's goal and God's desire is for humanity, and what he wants to be true for people, and what it means to be fully human and fully alive, he says, you know what, look at Jesus. Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And he gives us this clearest picture of who he's inviting us to be as his people. So the question is, how do we put on that new image? How do we put that on? What does that actually look like? And Paul gives us a couple of like little hints in the midst of this. First thing he says is to put on our, our new mind. And a new mind has been given to us in Jesus, and he encourages us to put that on. Earlier in this chapter, back in the first couple of verses, he tells the Colossians and us to seek and to think about the things that are above. To seek and to set our minds on the things that are above. Whenever Paul starts talking about transformation, about the deep kind of work that happens in our life, he always talks about our minds. He talks about what our thoughts and what is going on in our minds because he deeply knows that how we think shapes how we live. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said that people become what they think about all day. And whatever we're filling our thoughts with actually plays itself out in our lives, that our thoughts become embodied in actions. So Paul tells us to think about, the, to think according to above, according to the place where Christ lives and reigns, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, because our lives here should look like what life looks like there because there is actually coming here. He says, think about what life is like where Jesus fully reigns and live as if that's true now. There's a, a Nashville singer-songwriter named Ben Rector. Any Ben Rector fans in the house? A few, maybe? All right, so Ben's got a new uh, song on his new album called Live Like the World is Going to End. And it's a kind of a popular idea sometimes when we, we hear in conversations like if the world were ending tomorrow, if the Ben Affleck Armageddon movie is actually coming true and there is some large meteor or whatever coming crashing into earth, if you knew that life was going to end tomorrow, that the world was going to end tomorrow, how would you live? What would you do? And I, I, there's, there's something sort of compelling about that idea, but I think there's a, a more compelling thought in the scriptures not to live like the world is going to end, but to live like the world is being made new. To live like new creation is actually breaking into the present. To live like things are going to be when Jesus returns and makes everything right again. That's our invitation. Our invitation is into this world to imaginatively and creatively think about what is life going to look like when Jesus makes it all good again and we get to be a part of that now. So how do we put that on and live that out in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces, in our friendships, in our schools, and all of the places that we find ourselves in? How do we live like the world is being made new? 
That's what we're invited into. He tells us to think according to those things. And then he tells us, secondly, to put on our new allegiance. Because we're made in the image of God, we have a new allegiance. He says there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. In his letter to the Galatians, he also says there is no longer male or female. See, this doesn't mean, Paul's not saying that our ethnic, racial, economic, sexual differences cease to exist, but he is saying that those things become irrelevant when it comes to value and worth and significance and subsequently to love and value and respect. See, it used to be that we only treated the people who were in our group in this way. But now he says, in Christ, those things have been diminished. And what it's been elevated is the fact that we've all been brought together in the image of Jesus. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight puts it this way. He says, in Christ, the old is passe. That old thing is ethnic disunity, ritual disunity, socioeconomic hierarchies, cultural disunities, and gender domination. Those things are things we put away and we put on something new. The things that used to shape one's honor and sense of worth in society and in some people's minds before God is not what is true today. That in the new family of God, everyone bears Christ's image. That Jesus is in all people. That when we look at one another, we see Jesus coming out and we treat each other accordingly. We have a new allegiance not to our former in-group or this former group that we used to identify with, but we've now been brought into a new family. And now we are brothers and sisters with one another and we look at each other and we see Jesus shining through and we treat each other accordingly. He goes on then and says, that's where the new practices come in, to put on new practices, to new ways of living and relating with one another instead of practicing lust and greed and anger and lying. Instead of practicing these kinds of ways of relating to one another, we now begin to relate to another in a completely different way. He says, now instead of moving away from one another because of differences or protecting ourselves from one another because we're so concerned about ourselves and our own lives, we now move toward one another with compassion, the same way that God moves toward us. And when we move toward one another with compassion, we now treat one another with kindness. That kindness becomes the season that that's sort of in all of our relationships with one another, despite any of those differences that we might have, that we come with compassion or as in the emotionally healthy spirituality uh, conversation, say we, we move with wonder. Like, who are you? Who God made you to be? What's going on in your life? How can I be a part of that? And we come with a sense of kindness. And then we come in a sense of humility, and a pastor once say that, that sometimes we come to, into relationships with people and we come and we say, here I am. And so humility says we come into relationships with, there you are. There you are. There you, the one made in God's image and God's likeness. There you are. 
And we come in with a sense of wonder and awe, recognizing our own needs, our own limitations, and what others bring into the table. And we come humbly toward one another. And then he says, we practice patience with ourselves and with one another's. And three times, he says, we forgive ourselves and we forgive others. He repeats the idea of forgiveness several times. I wonder why he sort of emphasizes patience and forgiveness. And I think because Paul deeply knows that, that though we've been made new, new takes time. Right, we have been totally transformed. We have died with Jesus. We've been raised with Jesus. The things that were killing us have been killed and we're taking those things off at the same time. We've been made new and yet putting on the new takes time. Living into that, knowing what that fully looks like and how that gets fleshed out takes time. We have been made new and we are becoming new. Both are true. But ultimately, when we think about all these things, what is most beautiful, I think, about the way Paul talks about this is that he always starts with Jesus. He says, Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus will come back. It's because of Jesus that this is true of us. It's because of Jesus that this is true for us. And throughout this book of Colossians, we've emphasized over and over again that the work that we do, the things that we engage in with God are not things that we do to sort of like climb a mountain and arrive to God, but because God has come down and reached us and redeemed us and worked in us and now lives in us through the Spirit and is enabling us to do what we previously couldn't. This isn't just us putting on through our own effort, but it's us putting things on because of what's true of Christ and what's true of the Holy Spirit in us. And I don't think there's any more beautiful picture of this than what we see in C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you remember that book, it's one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And in that book, we're introduced to a young uh, boy named Eustace. And Eustace is greedy and slimy and complaining and whining. And you just do not, it's just like, I hope Eustace isn't on the next page as you're turning through the book. And there's a moment in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader where Eustace, through his greed, actually is transformed into a dragon. That something profoundly unhuman has happened to him. He's transformed. And he hurts himself and he's trying to figure out what to do. And Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure in the story, comes to him. And he comes to, As uh, to Eustace and he invites Eustace to come to these healing waters so that his arm might be healed. And as they start going there to the waters and Aslan looks at Eustace and says, first you'll have to undress. You're going to have to take this off. And so Eustace begins to take his dragon claws and sort of cut and scales start falling off. And then he cuts a little bit deeper and realizes like this whole skin comes off. Like he describes it as a peeling of a banana and he, he cuts it off and he goes and he starts going to the water and he looks down and he realizes that underneath that skin was another dragon skin. He's like, oh no. And so he takes another cut and he peels it off and he starts going and he looks and he's like, oh wait, there's a third skin. And then Aslan looks at him and says, you'll have to let me undress you. And then we find Lewis's words here. I thought about retelling the story, but I thought it's better just to let Lewis tell it. He says it this way, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. 
And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place. It says, well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. And I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water, pictures of baptism. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. This is the work that Jesus does in us. And what has happened to Jesus has happened to us. He died, and through his death, he has removed our scales. He has killed what kills us so we can take off that which brings us death. And he rose again. And through his resurrection, he put new clothes on us. And those new clothes revealed our true identity as the sons and daughters of God. So we come to the table today. Amen. We come to the table today in remembrance of this. And we come remembering what has happened to Christ. Remember that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. But we don't just come to remember, we come to recognize that those things have also happened to us. But we come not only saying, yes, this is true of me, but we also say, this is becoming true of me. So we come to the table and ask Christ to continue the work that he started in us to continue to put to death the things that bring death in us, to help us take those things off and to put new things on. And we come not only in remembrance of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing through the Spirit, but we come in holy and wondrous anticipation for what will be finally and fully true for us in the future, that Christ will resurrect us and that someday we'll be fully new, fully alive again, or being made new now.